News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So our financial picture is one that has been changing for some and a lot of people worsening over the last six months or so. And there is concern that consumer debt is on the rise, even though interest rates do remain pretty low. Are people using that money to get by on a you know weekly basis? Are they spending money on things? Like where is it all going? Well, let's find out more about this. Rebecca Oakes joins us now. Rebecca works in advanced analytics at Equifax Canada, and we're going to talk about some of the disruptions that we're seeing out there. Rebecca, thank you for being here. Hi, good morning. So what is it that you've taken a look at and look at in terms of consumer spending? What are people using that money for? So it's really interesting since COVID started because what we've really seen is that consumers have actually pulled back their spending to a to a large degree, particularly on kind of high cost credits such as credit cards, which is a really positive thing in terms of going through a period such as this. But what we are seeing is that mortgages, uh, despite that kind of a slump in the housing market in April and May, that's actually really picked back up again, particularly in June and into July. So overall household debt is on the up. So is it if so if mortgage balances helped push the average debt to, you know, a higher level, but non-mortgage debt was down, does that mean that people paying off their credit cards and perhaps would have deferred their mortgage payments for a few months? So in some cases, yes. So what we, what we have seen is that there's really some different things going on at the moment. So some consumers potentially may have already been in a bit of a challenging situation financially prior to COVID. And actually through this period, they're actually leveraging some of those support mechanisms to really help them out with other debts. So as you kind of mentioned there, potentially some consumers are deferring payments on things like mortgages to help them pay down some of those credit card balances elsewhere. At the same time, there are also pockets of consumers where actually this is a really difficult time for them still. um, And they're still struggling a little bit in terms of how can they make those payments and their support mechanisms are really key to helping them through this period. And how are delinquency rates? So delinquency rates are up very slightly this quarter. Year on year, they are up quite a lot. Um, But actually, a lot of that came from 2019. So in 2019, we were starting to see some consumers starting to miss some payments, um, kind of a bit of a fallout from some economical shifts like the oil prices, things like that, Mm -hmm. Uh, but also some of the earlier interest rate increases. So some consumers had extended things like HELOCs, you know, secured lines of credit, which have a variable rate. So as those interest rates started to increase, that put some stress on them. So some of those delinquency shifts we're seeing year on year actually happened prior to COVID. Um, So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens over the coming months as some of those support mechanisms start to reduce. Yeah, I guess that will be the key then. What about the housing market? It stayed remarkably resilient through all of this. Has that played a role at all? So... In April and May, it was really driven a lot by um, refinancing. So some consumers were kind of taking advantage of some of the low interest rates as as we kind of tried to stimulate the economy. Uh, So refinancing was kind of up more than actual house sales themselves. But I'm sure, as you've seen, the reports in July and coming into August, house sales have really bounced back, as have average house prices, which is kind of good and bad. It's great to see that, that initial recovery. But obviously for some consumers, you know, such as younger consumers, potentially first time home buyers, Increasing house prices obviously is is additional stress for them. So, what are you looking for for in the next couple of months, then, Rebecca? 
So we've really got our eye on some of the industries that perhaps maybe may take slightly longer to recover. So there is some real positive signs in terms of what we've seen generally across Canada with employment rates and retail spending. But some industries still potentially are in a bit of precarious waters. So we mentioned a lot about the hospitality, the restaurant industries, where actually there are quite a lot of consumers that are employed in those industries. And it's still a little bit challenging for them through this period because obviously even with lockdown reducing, it's still quite hard for them to kind of keep their businesses at the same level that they had prior. We haven't really seen the full shake out yet, have we, of all the consequences of what's happened? No, I think I think the next couple of months in particular are going to be really interesting to watch and, and see. And, and you know, fingers crossed it, it, it'll have a positive outcome, but obviously there are those risks that still, still remain. Do you think that the measures that some of the banks took in terms of being more cooperative and helping people out and deferring some of those payments, did that help? Absolutely. I think that combined with the, the government programs, absolutely critical during this period in terms of helping people get through this. Um, but obviously, you know, at some point those, those mechanisms are going to have to start to reduce. So it's really about balance. How do you balance reducing those that support with also the, the kind of increasing recovery? So right. if you get that balance right, that's fine. If you don't, then obviously that could create some additional challenges for consumers. It also sounds like, though, that the Canadians are pretty financially savvy, that, you know, taking advantage of the lower interest rates, refinancing things, paying off credit card debt, like they, they know what to do. Yeah, actually, we, we have been really quite uh, impressed in terms of how it has been handled. You know, definitely we are seeing consumers really kind of, you know, make those payments where they need to. They're making them on the, on, on the higher interest rate products, typically, try and get those balances down. So, yeah, we, we definitely think that consumers have been managing this in a really sensible way. All right. Well, Rebecca, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That is Rebecca Oakes. Uh, She's with Advanced Analytics at Equifax, and they are looking at essentially how Canadians are spending money. And they do have more debt in some areas, but like non-mortgage debt was down compared to 2019, even though mortgage balances were up a little bit. Might have to do with refinancing, might have to do with people kind of deferring payments. But overall, it sounds like Canadians were definitely kind of moving money around and trying to figure out what the best way is moving forward. But as Rebecca pointed out, and many others have too, the next couple of months are really going to be the time that tells us what kind of shape Canadians are in financially. How does Game 7 sound tomorrow night here in Edmonton? Game 7 sounds pretty darn good if you ask me and for a lot of Canucks fans of course that's what we are going to be watching this evening forcing a Game 7 last night. They won Game 6 of course quite definitively for nothing as a matter of fact thanks to Thatcher Jemko. Hey let's talk to Nikki Reitmeyer about this and more. Nikki did you watch the game last night? Yes, I did. It was uh, it was really, really satisfying to see. It because really there was. were so many doubters throughout this whole thing, right? Saying, oh, they're not going to make it to the next round. Or oh, and they're certainly not going to beat the Las Vegas Golden Knights. Or, you know, now that they're down in the series, they're not going to win. They're not going to come back. But that's just a coping mechanism, Nikki. Like well, I, think, yeah. I know lots of Canucks <laughs> fans who have been doing that ever since I was like a little kid. Is that we do that because we want the opposite to be so true. But we're trying to tell ourselves that it's okay if it doesn't happen. Well, I think that's exactly it. Because if there's one thing I know about sports fans, it's that if you predict something such as failure and, and you're right, you feel so satisfied in your prediction, right? I told you they weren't going to make it. I think there's a lot of that going on. So, you know, even, well, look, who knows what's going to happen tonight? I'd love to see them go on to the next round. 
they don't, you know, not the end of the world, but it would be really, I'd like to think positively about it. And if I'm wrong, that's okay. I don't mind being wrong, but I'd rather be thinking positively about them doing well tonight. I think what has amazed me about this particular team and the fans right now is that people seem so supportive regardless of the outcome. That is usually not the case with Canucks fans, <laughs> right? Usually it's one foot on the bandwagon, one foot kind of hanging off the bandwagon. And this time around, I feel like, and I say this from experience because this is what I've heard in my house, which was shocking to me, uh, which was, oh, you know what? Even if they don't win, we're just happy to be here. These guys are so great. They'll be back next year. And I looked at my husband and I said, who are you? What, if, yeah, what has happened to you? <laughs> this isn't a Canucks fan. Yeah, exactly. You should be screaming at your TV right now, yeah. swearing you'll never jump on the bandwagon again. So true. And is, isn't it funny too that, you know, typically if this was any other year, what conversation would we be having right now? We'd be talking about how expensive tickets are to go to the arena to watch the game, wouldn't we? Yes, how exciting yep. would that be, though? And I think uh, Francesco yeah. Aquilini, one of the owners of the team, actually uh, tweeted that out last night about how great the atmosphere would be at Rogers Arena <laughs> if we were there. Uh, that is not, and I know it's hard for the team too. I know some of the players have referenced that that it's hard to keep up momentum and intensity and pressure when the crowd is not there. But they are certainly doing a great job. They certainly are, and it'll be really exciting to watch that game tonight. We're going out for dinner tonight because it is our producer Victor's birthday, which is very exciting. So just that little small crew of us uh, going to celebrate his birthday. So I really hope that they have the t- the TVs on in the restaurant and that the, the Canucks game will be on. I don't always wish for that, no. that TVs are on in a restaurant, but I, I, this would be great. I'd love to see TVs on in the restaurant tonight <laughs> so we can watch at least a few minutes of the game anyways in between bites. You just really gave me a flashback to my... My childhood there for a second. Can I tell a quick story? <laughs> yeah, of course. This goes back to 1982. Okay. Canucks in the Stanley Cup final for the first time ever against the New York Islanders. And my whole family was out for dinner up at the top of Grouse Mountain. Uh, like, so it was like a really fancy dinner, yeah. right? We all got dressed up. I guess it had been, I don't know, I was only 10 years old or something like that, nine years old. And so um, it had been planned for a long time. We were all dressed up. But I do remember that sitting at the dinner table, it was only the women and children because all of the men were in the kitchen with the staff <laughs> watching the TV that they had on there because there was a hockey game. And I remember that the Canucks lost because I believe they went out in four straight. And I just remember this picture of these all these dejected men like my dad, my uncles, coming back into Took the dining the room because the Canucks had lost. And it was like, well, that was a quiet dinner after that. <laughs> that is hilarious. I can just picture that all these guys crowded around the oh, one yeah. chef who's, who's now burning the food because he's yeah. not watching the food at all. I didn't even remember what the food was like. I just remember that that was, everybody was crowded. They were all crowded around this little TV in the kitchen with the staff watching the watching the game. I think there'll be oh, some of that going on. So anywhere there's a TV tonight, I'm sure people will be watching. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's funny too, you know, back in the in the good old days, you used to, used to listen to the Canucks on CKNW as well. I have so many memories of that from my childhood. So people will be watching, I'm sure, in different ways. I watched it on my laptop last night, which is, you know, new technology that we certainly didn't have back then. I'm, but as you said, <laughs> no. lots of people will be watching, will be watching tonight, which is really, really exciting. But okay, other than the Canucks game, do you have any plans for the long weekend? Um, no, I think I was going to bake some cakes this weekend. I have too much mayonnaise. So I was thinking maybe a couple chocolate cakes but that's about it oh too much mayonnaise why not feed it to other people right to i don't know how i ended up with two giant costco sized jars of mayonnaise in my pantry but something's got to be done so <laughs> well if you are hitting the road this long weekend whether you're going to be traveling within the lower mainland or whether you're planning on on going out of town 
ICBC actually posted a really interesting warning that I thought was worth reiterating. They reminded everyone that there are 2,100 crashes that happen on average in British Columbia every Labor Day long weekend. I was really shocked to hear that 2,100 crashes that happen in BC. And they said on average, four people die as a result of those crashes Mm. and 600 are injured. So if you are going to be hitting the road this weekend, please be really careful. They sent out some reminders, the, the, the stuff that you'd expect, you know, don't use your cell phone while you're driving leave at least two seconds in following distance or three seconds. If you're on a high speed road, such as a highway, check road conditions before you travel and stay out of other people's blind spots, especially large trucks. I thought that one was interesting yeah. because I could just imagine, you know, truck drivers going, yes, please stay out of our blind spots. That would be so good. And I know it is going to be busy out there. The roads are certainly quiet commuting wise today, but lineups at the ferries tell us there's going to be a lot of traveling today. So Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That is our Nikki Wright. Mary, yes, keeping an eye on that uh, road safety out there, ICBC, with some good words of advice on that. Please don't be distracted driving. Don't using your cell phone. Don't do any of that kind of stuff. And yes, the ferries, you can check bcferries.com for more on that. But I tell you, if you're trying to go from the mainland over to one of the islands, Southern Gulf Islands, Vancouver Island, whatever the case may be, you're looking at not getting there until at least this afternoon because most of the ferries are full up at this point. So we'll keep you posted on how that goes. Well, there's an industry in BC that really needs your help right now. And by doing so, you can also help yourself by having some really good fruit because a lot of it is going to waste in the Okanagan or it's about to go to waste because farmers there can't pick the fruit fast enough and there's nobody to hire to help them do that. Joining us now is Pinder Dollywall, president of the BC Fruit Growers Association. Pinder, thank you for being here. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for having me on your uh, on the air today. Well, I saw this story and I thought well, we better talk about this because this is something that, you know, people love to buy local. They love to eat local. They love to buy their fruit from the Okanagan. But what's happening? Well, uh, as you know, it all started with uh, COVID-19 in March. <clears throat> Nobody knew that was going to come along and uh, things start shutting down and the airports were were closing up and movement kind of came to a standstill and uh a lot of uh, a lot of preparation happens before the the fruit uh, gets ready for harvest, and uh, it's pruning, uh, thinning, and, and uh, you know getting the tree ready for for the summer and to have a good uh, good harvest, good fruit, good flavors. And uh, usually we get a lot of guest workers uh, coming in uh, from uh, the Caribbean, uh, mostly from Jamaica and Guatemala area and Mexico. And with the pandemic, the airport shut down and the uh, visa processing offices shut down. So, so that created kind of a, well, it stopped all the labor coming from there. And so how have you managed, how have farms managed so far this year then? Well, um, it, it was tight once uh, people realized, you know, all, all the workers that do come in and help uh, get the uh, fruit and vegetables onto the kitchen tables for Canadians and and for uh, export around the world, they realized that uh, you know they got to put in the extra hours and kind of uh, any help. Uh, ask your neighbor if there's anybody having a day off or, or uh, you know they finished uh, ahead of time to maybe send the the help over so they could get everything harvested in time. And it wasn't just the guest workers that come in from Mexico and. And uh, the Caribbean, we have a lot of European and Asians that come in into uh, Canada on a tourist work visa. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it impacts them also. And uh, we have a lot of youth that come from Quebec and Ontario. 
and I would say about only half came uh, this year because uh, because of the uh, concerns uh, of the uh, COVID-19. So then I have farmers and the people who work there, you've just been working overtime constantly? Pretty much. It's overtime on top of overtime. <laughs> you know, it's all started with cherries and... Uh, uh, pretty much uh, what happened with cherries is you started a block and, and you tried to keep up. If uh, Mother Nature doesn't stop, the, the fruit keeps ripening and uh, you just move on to the next variety if you didn't get off in time. And I know some growers, uh, my, my friends here, um, when the next variety was kind of ripening uh, on stage to get it harvested, they left the block they were picking so they didn't uh, lose the next block just to kind of stay ahead of the game. Is there a lot of wastage going on, do you think? Oh, yeah, yeah. If you came to my farm, uh, like right now, we're just finishing up with peaches and nectarines. And uh, I've got a sunrise apple. It's a summer apple. And they usually have about 10 pickers to pick that. Uh, We we were working with four. And with four, I was working not only the uh, tractor, but I also was picking. So I was hopping back and forth quite a bit. So I couldn't get to my nectarines in time, and of course they over-ripened and, and they were falling. They'd kind of drop off the tree. And same thing happened with my pears. If you drive by, I'm on a, I'm on a busy road here, and uh, you'll see all these yellow, sparkling, nice-looking pears on the ground. And, and people kind of wonder. They stop by, and they'll say, hey, what happened to your pears? And so, well, we just couldn't get to them in time, and they and, kind of... So, ripened. Pinder, what about you pick then? Can you get people to come and pick it for you? Just say, listen, ten, like, set a price for a box and tell people to come and get it. Yeah, it's, uh, you could have a you pick, but still you have to kind of monitor the picking of people that are walking through your farm. Um, you know, you want to give them some kind of training and say, hey, be careful of, uh, right. uh, you know, it's not level ground. It's, uh, there's grass here, there's mosquitoes. There might be that overripe uh, pear on the ground that they might step into, and and you know you still got to yeah. give them a heads up on, on what's expected in the uh, in the field. Um, but uh, you know we're trying to get all the locals out. I know uh, I had a few people come in from uh, Vancouver area, Lower Mainland, and basically he he came here for a week. He was like over sixty years old. I didn't realize that he was sixty years old, and he said, "Hey, I'll help you pick sunrise." He picked sunrise with me. And then he had a family matter. He had to go back, and he started talking to me the day he uh, got paid. He said, you know what? He was 66. I said, wow, you don't look 66. He <laughs> goes, I've been hard working. And I thought, you know, I want to go out there and spend a week and see, you know, just help out. Okay. So he came out. So if and, we can send uh, more people yeah, your way then, if we can send more people your way to help out, what's, where can they reach or where can they get more information? You know, they could reach uh, our office, uh, BCFGA website. Uh, if they just okay. go to BCFGA, and uh, we'll have links up there, and uh, we'll try to coordinate with everybody. Okay. We also have uh, a labor uh, a program. He matches uh, the workers with the farms. All right. Uh, his name is Ron Forrest. We have his number on the website. And uh, the apple, the winter apple is starting. We're just starting galas, so uh, we need all the help. If, if you got a week or, or maybe more than a week to come out, and experience we'll the beautiful economy help us out. Well, to see what we can do. Pinder, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Simi. Have a good day. You too. So if you can help out BC fruit growers right now, spare a day, couple of days, go enjoy yourself and help them out and pick some fruit and earn some money, check them out at the BC Fruit Growers Association. 
You know, there's so many things about this year that we find ourselves saying, geez, I, I didn't expect to be here at this place. If you'd ask Canucks fans, you know, at the early part of the year, would you expect to still be playing playoff hockey towards the end of the second round in the month of September? Yeah, that would have seemed pretty far-fetched. And yet here we are. Not only that, big game last night where they won, and now a game seven tonight. Let's talk about what's going on in the world of sports. Christian O'Mel joins us now, host of the sports show on 680 CJOB. Christian, thanks for being here. Good morning, Sammy. Christian, how about those Canucks? How about them? I mean, I I gave them very little chance of winning this series. And after game one and after game four, you're thinking, all right, well, they had a good run. It was nice, but <laughs> yes. it's, it's coming to an end here. And then Thatcher Demko comes in, and it's it's amazing what happens in the playoffs sometimes when just a goalie can make such a big difference. We've seen it so many times over the course of hockey history. A goalie can be the ultimate X factor. And here comes Thatcher Demko. He's been unbelievable, right? He makes 48 saves in a shutout last night. He wins his first career playoff start the, the game before, and... I think part of it, too, is the shot total is high, but I'm not sure the chances are as dangerous as previous games. I think Vancouver's done a good job of keeping Vegas to the outside, and they seem to be panicking a little bit. It reminds me of 2010 when the Canadians upset the Capitals with Yaroslav Halak. They came back from 3-1 down, just like Vancouver's doing. They're allowing almost 50 shots a game, but a lot of them were long-range shots. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, Demko's been amazing. You've got opportunistic offense, you know, Jake Furtanen right off the bat last night. But the one thing I would be worried about if I'm a Vancouver fan is the fact that they're playing again tonight. And we've seen through the playoffs that back-to-backs, teams have been more successful when they have two goalies that can go. And here we have Vegas with Marc-Andre Fleury potentially being able to go tonight. And Jacob Markstrom is probably still hurt. So you're going to have to go with Demko again he is red hot, but he's going to be playing three games in four nights. And we'll see if that has a negative impact on him. But right now, Vancouver's got all the momentum. Christian, we're just happy to be here. That's the that's oh, what Canucks fans keep be. telling themselves. We are just happy to be here at this point. Oh, and you should be, right? No one expected you to get this far. And you have a, you're one win away from the Final Four. And you could be facing a Dallas team that just holds on or a Colorado team that's also on a third-string goalie. So... The playoffs Amazing. in NHL are unpredictable in the best of times for the most part, but now you, you throw in the bubble aspect of it, you throw in no fans, no home ice, and it creates an environment where we might see some crazy momentum swings, and that's what we're seeing with three of the four series, having teams that have blown 3-1 leads and now going to Game 7. Hey, what do you think the, the ratings are like for the NHL playoffs? Because it's so weird, right? Actually watching playoff hockey in, here we are, September. Are a lot of people paying attention, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think that, I know for the, for a fact, south of the border, the NBA playoff ratings have been fantastic. Uh, north of the border, I know Sportsnet's numbers are up, for sure. They've got a lot of live programming. And let's face it, in August, September, there aren't new shows on TV for the most part, right? That's yeah. when, you know, there's reruns, there's, you know, you're trying out these weird new series for this TV network. So in terms of competition, it's not what they're up against on TV. It's what they're up against in life, right? You got people leaving their house, they're going to the cottage, they're enjoying the weather. That's the competition of sports. But for those people who don't necessarily feel comfortable doing that with the current climate being what it is with COVID, it's a nice thing to 
be distracted by. And I, I mean, I'm a sports show host, so I, I have good reason to be watching every game every day. Yeah. But for sure, I think a lot of people are tuning in, and the fact that there's a Canadian team still in it has to make the rights holders in this country pretty happy. Uh, do you want a prediction for tonight? <laughs> Not really. You don't, you don't want to make I, a prediction, really? Well, last time I was on last time I was on the air, I said it'd be Vegas and Boston in the Stanley Cup final, yeah, and so far did. that's looking pretty rough. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think anyone has any belief in what I'm going to say. <laughs> that is true. Uh, that's tough, right? But that is the way of the playoffs, too. Uh, I think we're all pretty happy that you were wrong. One, Boston's out. That all that always makes Vancouver oh, yeah, fans happy true. if Boston's That's true, eh? I guess, yeah, you've got some history with Boston back from 2011. Yeah, there's a lot that we could hang on to already. Uh, let's also talk about Raptors because I was watching that game as well, uh, you mm-hmm. know, beginning of the Canucks game and watching the Raptors game. That was amazing. That finish, you just don't see anything like that very often. No, that was nuts. We've seen a bunch of crazy finishes in the bubble lately, and I think that uh, while I was on the air doing during my show doing an interview last night while also keeping an eye on that game, I had I saw the buzzer beater happen, and, and Boston wins the game. Like, Boston won the game. 0.5 seconds left, this amazing play to get a wide-open dunk, and you're thinking, oh, they're toast. They're yeah. going to lose. They're going to get swept. And then this incredible pass by Kyle Lowry over a guy with like a 7'7 seven seven wingspan goes to the other side of the court, catch and shoot quickly, it goes in, and it's an incredible play. It's a buzzer beater. You know if that was in, it would have been in Boston, technically, I guess, if there were, you know, if this was the normal times. But let's remember, that's an insane finish. They're still down in the series. They still barely won that game. Boston didn't play that well that game. So I'm still thinking the Raptors are in pretty big trouble to advance. But even if they don't advance, they still have this moment and they still have that title ring from last year. Oh, they certainly do. Do you think that's what we need right now, are these kinds of storylines, this kind of drama, just something to keep people engaged and interested? Oh, well, it's, that's what sports are all about, right? It's the ultimate reality television where you have, you know, a Michael Hutchinson for Colorado who is on a scrap heap. He's now got that team to Game 7. You've got the Raptors, you know, without Kawhi Leonard pulling – these games out still being a tough team to beat and every night there seems to be something we've got uh, a great golf tournament this weekend the u.s open we've got three canadians into the third round and the men's side for the first time ever of a grand slam there's a lot happening in sports right now and you know given that we're still not even close out of the weeds with this pandemic and you know South of the border, things aren't all that great for a variety of reasons, and we obviously absorb some of that anxiety in this yeah. country. I'm totally okay with uh, spending a lot of time watching sports these days. I am totally okay with that, too. Uh, Christian, thank you. No problem. Great song for a Friday morning, isn't it? And a great song to keep in mind, because I think everybody has to stay positive over the next week or two as we shift our attention to getting back to school. It is a huge undertaking. Hey, September is a huge undertaking anyway, never mind the fact that there is a pandemic going on, right? And so we're juggling all of those concerns as we move forward. So that's our focus for the next week or two here on the show as well, talking about back to school. And towards that end, we have been discussing with different superintendents of different school districts what that school year is going to look like, at least at the beginning. And today it is Victoria's turn. We're going to find out how things are going in Victoria. So joining us now is Shelley Green, the Victoria School District Superintendent. Shelly, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. How big is the Victoria School District? We have 20,000 students and roughly 3,000 staff in Victoria, so um, medium size. Okay, medium size. How has the planning been going then? Are you comfortable with the plan? 
Yes, actually we are. We put out a survey to our families once we got our ministerial plan um, approved. And then we were hearing a lot about from our families that they had some concerns in some areas. And we created a survey for them to answer to let us know what they were looking at that would make them feel comfortable and confident about returning this school year. We had uh, a huge uptake in our survey and it came back 80% that wanted fully back in and were anxious to get back to school. Uh, 14 were looking at a hybrid, which was uh, some face-to-face with our staff, some um, remote learning and some at-home school style learning. Mm -hmm. And of course, with our immunocompromised uh, families, identifying who was in that space and being able to provide learning for that. So we've been working with those numbers all week, and we are comfortable and confident about going back to school next week. So a lot of parents that I've heard from are hoping that their school district, wherever it is, provides them some kind of option for like transitional learning or some learning at home. Has Victoria been able to do that? Yes, that was uh, what we were hearing as well. And so that's what we came up with, with the hybrid model for those families that aren't quite comfortable transitioning back in. And, and it provides an opportunity as well for them to be able to learn from those areas that you've just described, but also when they become confident about their students returning with the um, plan that we've got, there is an entry space. So natural turnaround times in our school district and being able to have space in their schools and keeping their space as this moves forward. So uh, what about the size of the cohorts then, the learning groups for the students? Uh, it's, it seems to vary with every district. It does indeed. And, and as we've gone through the Initial ideas about those cohorts, I think, were scary for people. But what they've realized as we've gone along is that we've designed our, our school day um, around these models to begin with to set the space. Most of our classes will return inside their normal division and, and learn within those. So that could be a division in an elementary school of 24 students um, or in a high school of 28. And some of those divisions will cross over um, into each other. And we will provide the safety measures when they do. Some won't, and they will stay um, in their own cohort uh, the entire time, depending on. And then when people come into their classroom, say a prep teacher who's going to do music, they will wear the masks and do the social distancing. So those um, guidelines that we've received around safety protocols has really helped. And I think that's lowered the anxiety for many of our parents. And what about the sanitization in the schools? Has that been increased as well? Absolutely. We've hired more custodians in our school district and paid attention to um, the design of, of not only the cohorts, but the classes and where they go and touch spaces. So if uh, two classes are entering into a classroom, um, the first half of the day in high school and a different class in the afternoon will be doing the cleaning in between. Um, we've set up the touch spaces and common spaces in between. We've got cleaning products in every single classroom or meeting room. So if I'm sitting in a meeting and the meeting is over, I can use those cleaning products to clean where I was. So each one of those things has been carefully designed about the guidelines for cleanliness, custodial Mm -hmm. time, and making sure we have the turnaround. And what about uh, the actual social distancing and physical distancing in the classrooms? This has been a big one for so many people. It certainly has. And I mean, we've listened to Bonnie Henry. She's been amazing as we've gone through. Um, BC has done very well in our statistics on how we are doing. And so bringing in kind of like that family bubble um, into your cohort, knowing that those 24 students and four teachers will be in that space, um, the cleanliness and, and protocols around them and being comfortable in there. 
And then when other folks um, enter into that space, that's where the social distancing. But ultimately, when you're in a hallway or an uncontrolled space, to keep um, the masks and, and those protocols in place. Um, we were talking about fire drills, actually, the other day and how we navigate around a fire drill and spacing people out when yeah. it's two cohorts that haven't been around each other. So the planning with each one of those directions has been um, very succinct. And even though people, as you said, are a little bit nervous, I feel totally confident about the, uh, the guidelines that we've followed for health as we move forward to this restart in September. And how important, I know, and I know this too, how important this is, uh, in keeping that attitude because we're dealing with kids here, right? And adults have to kind of lead the way on this. Absolutely. And you're right, we are talking about children. Uh, They will go outside on the playground and they will play and, um, and go into each other's bubbles. And it's just reminding them, as we always do, when we come back in with our little ones, you're going to wash your hands. Remember not to touch your face and getting into those routines. And once children are in those routines, they do very well with them. It's just that reminder in the training piece when you're walking down the hall or social distancing. One thing I have noticed this summer being out and about and seeing a lot of our students around is that uh, when you go to the grocery store, they actually remind their parents of what to be doing. So oh, they do. They attach to it very well, very quickly. Oh, they certainly do. All right, listen, best of luck, Shelley. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for having me. Have a great day. You too. That is Shelley Green, the superintendent of the Victoria School District. We've been checking in with as many school districts from around the province as we possibly can. And as you, if you've been listening, then you know that every plan is slightly different. But of course, it will depend on the school size, the district size, how many students, what they are able to do. But there is some uniformity there. And I think the big challenge here is you know, making sure everybody's on board, but also adults have to do a lot of work here and reassuring kids, taking charge, making sure that we remind the kids that this is what we're doing and reassuring them because kids will get anxious about this if they sense, you know, all the anxiety coming from the adults here too. So next week, yeah, will be that challenge. We're going to continue to talk about this And, and tell me how you're feeling at this point. Like hopefully as a parent, you have more information than you did a couple of weeks ago. Hopefully, fingers crossed, you're feeling a bit better about the process or you might have some more concerns and questions. Let me know what those are so that we can continue to have that conversation. Simi at cknw.com. As we get further from April, the amount of juice left in the labor market from reopening of businesses that were shut down earlier is gradually fading. Right. That's Brendan Bernard. He's an economist at the Indeed Hiring Lab. That was his prediction yesterday on what we were going to hear in today's labor force survey. So the employment numbers that are out today, though, don't kind of tell the full story of where we are at with getting things, at least trying to get things back to normal. So let's talk about that now with our next guest. It is Ken Peacock, Chief Economist and Vice President at the Business Council of BC. Ken, thanks for being back with us. You're very welcome. Good to be here. Oh, let's start with what you like about the numbers. Well, it's in positive territory, uh, so we saw jobs added, so that that's good news. But we're heading in the right direction. Um, after that, the, the positive details start start to diminish, and, and the, the biggest thing is just the slowdown in the pace of job creation. I, I would characterize this as, you know, if we were in normal times, uh, a fifteen thousand gain for a single month would be quite strong and something to, to actually celebrate. But in the current context, when we've lost so many jobs, 
this 15,000 uh, gain re- really is a slowdown when you consider the previous month. We had 70,000 in the previous month, uh, twice that. So exactly as our little opening seg- as, as our short op- opening segment says, suggested, that we are seeing the wind and the, and the juice come out of the labor market in terms of the rehiring process. Right. And I guess that's also because I guess we were hoping that we could make up a lot of jobs in the summer because as we go into the fall now, circumstances change in terms of the rules that governments had put into place. Sure. Yeah, we, exactly. And we were hoping the reopening would lead to a, a, a big rebound. And, it, and, and indeed it did. I think we are now into the phase where you, where you saw that big juice with the, in, in employment with the reopening. And now we're into a world where... Business is uncertain still. The, the rehiring activity that was going to occur has taken place, and now it's, it's mixed across industries. And this is exactly what we see. Somewhat surprisingly, we didn't actually see job growth in the services sector. And, and I say surprisingly because that's really where the consumer close, closures uh, facing businesses were closed and the, the pain was most acute. All of the jobs this month were in the manufacturing sector and the components in manufacturing. Sorry, all the jobs this month were in the goods producing sector and it was manufacturing, agriculture, and construction that were the main drivers. So we really didn't see much much lift on the uh, services side of the economy. And as I said, that's, that is a bit surprising. Are you concerned as well that those provincial layoff provisions are ending? They're done now. I mean, that was at the end of August. So things, yep. the September numbers are, I feel like, are going to be quite consequential. They, they are. You, 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 the, the layoffs, uh, ha- having to dis- make the decision whether you're going to bring somebody back or lay them off permanently and not, uh, b- not being able to extend this is going to cause uh, and prompt a lot of layoffs, uh, we do suspect. And then the other thing, of course, is the wrapping up of the CERB. Uh, so you've got a couple dynamics there. You've got some, some situations where layoffs may be forced, and then you also have situations where the CERB is going to run out for, for a lot of people, and those people will be looking for work. So the key, the key question is, when those people are flowing back into the labor force and the labor market looking for it, are there, are there going to be jobs available for them? Right. So that's what we're going to be watching. So uh, does this look like a, a change that is happening, Ken? Like, is the economy overall having to, is it adapting, or are we still in a bit of a waiting period, do you think? Uh, it, it, the adaption process is constant, so the churn and, and the adaption is ongoing. It's just it's just a question of, of how quickly, and it takes time. The economy is so big; there's so many people employed, and I mean, just just to give your listeners a sense, I, there were one. 0.1 million British Columbians who collected the CERB or have collected the CERB so far. The overall job market prior to the pandemic uh, hitting us was, you know, employment was 2, 2.3 million. So upwards of a half of everybody in the labor market has collected the CERB at some point over the past six months. So the transition away is worrisome. Uh, the slowdown in job growth is worrisome. So I do think we're going to face some challenges in September, Simi. And now leading you know, into the fall, this is usually kind of a buying season, right? You've got Halloween coming, Thanksgiving, you've got Christmas. What do we think about those kind of retail holidays at this point? I, I, I think they should be good. I mean, the retail... Spending has been surprisingly strong, but but to, but to my mind, some of that reflects the fact that I mean people didn't have access to stores for a couple months, so there was some pent up demand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as long as the CERB is flowing, there's a fair bit of income. I mean, 
so, so that probably helps boost retail. I, I think you're going to see, again, a, a bit similar pattern to the job market story where that rebound in retail spending is, is going to moderate a little bit. So, yeah, a little bit of a question mark about the, the holiday spending season. It will it will be diminished and dampened if there is this challenge. If if that uh, removal of the CERB actually hits household finances uh, hard and harder than I, I guess uh, government officials and some other people are expecting. Yeah, I guess we will see. Ken, thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Ken Peacock, Chief Economist and Vice President at the Business Council of BC. Yeah, the August numbers are out, but really I think most economists and everybody, they're looking ahead now to September, October, where temporary layoff provisions are gone, meaning companies can now permanently lay off workers, and that big change starts to happen. If you want to tell me your story about what's happened to you in the workplace, by all means, email me, simi at cknw.com. We are going to talk about what's going on in the housing industry and what that means for house prices coming up. In Vancouver, uh, home sales uh, up significantly across all product types, home prices up as well. Uh, And again, we always have to remind ourselves that we are in a global pandemic with uh, double-digit unemployment. Uh, So this is not the usual thing that we see in a recession. No, it is not. That is BC Real Estate Association Chief Economist Brendan Ogmanson talking about the state of the housing market right now, which does seem contradictory, does seem to be kind of defying expectations. Uh, There are people jumping into the housing market right now. Things are selling really quickly. So we wanted to break down further the impact this could potentially have out there. So joining us now is UBC professor and founder of Generation Squeeze, Paul Kershaw. Hi, Paul. Hi, thanks for having me. What do you make of what's going on? Well, I think we actually see a continuation of the trend in Canada where housing is providing two important things for people. On one hand, it's the place we call home that's become so increasingly important to us as a place of refuge amongst uh, amid the pandemic. But it's uh, simultaneously in our culture also a good investment opportunity. And we're seeing right now people with means supported to some degree by record low interest rates, finding new opportunities to search for that good investment, while also potentially adjusting you know, some of the home circumstances that they're looking for. And so it's these two competing trends, right. is it a place to call home or an investment. It, that's interesting because you would, most times you think that in an economic downturn, prices will go down, things will level out, and maybe that would provide a way for some people to get into the market. Well, if we have a goal of affordability, then absolutely, like, you know, one might have thought a silver lining from the pandemic would have been continuation of the slowdown in home prices in British Columbia and Metro Vancouver. Um, A few years ago, you know, our research would have shown it would have taken a young person getting into the housing market 29 years of full-time work to save a 20% down payment on an average-priced home. By last year, it had crept down to 26 years. That's, you know, clearly a huge problem still, but it's a bit of progress. And it's discouraging to see that, the uh, we've reversing that trend uh, amid the pandemic, but I think it's partly how we talk about it. I mean, if we t- if we think about how housing prices right now are often characterized by commentators, we'll say, oh, the housing market is recovering, uh, and, the, and that means we're thinking the housing prices are healthier when they start to rise again. And you know, for people like me who are homeowner, and my home, full disclosure, went up three hundred thousand dollars last year according to BC assessment. Personally, I gain a great deal of wealth when home prices rise. But by the same measure, someone who works just as hard as me and is just as clever as me coming into my neighborhood now is going to find it much more challenging to get right. into the housing market. And so I think we have to have a much more nuanced conversation. What do we mean when home prices are healthy and amid a pandemic more so than ever? 
So do we say that, do you think, because prices are going up or do we say that because everything is selling? You know, things are going on for the market. They're not sitting on the market. Things are selling really quickly. I think we typically think the housing prices are, or the housing market is healthy when home prices are going up. I think that's the most common way to describe it. I also think that amid a pandemic, you know, as our governments are looking to reignite our economies, you know, BC is particularly at risk of falling back on trends that have, you know, driven up our gross domestic product in past years, but actually exacerbated unaffordability. So in British Columbia, uh, pre-pandemic, about 18% of our economy was represented by real estate rental and leasing. But amazingly, just 2% of British Columbia residents actually find employment in that sector. And so our economy had been growing faster than other provinces because our economy was the place where more and more of our economy is represented by real estate. And had we had employment in that sector growing at the same pace, that wouldn't be so bad because then you'd be growing employment in numbers that would keep earnings in relationship to the rising cost of housing. But our strategy has been different. We've been growing our economy by growing the major cost of living without ensuring that that industry is also generating jobs at levels that keep earnings in pace. So, Paul, what should we be doing then? I think we need to have a new conversation amid the pandemic about what would it be to build a better economy coming out of the, the pandemic. And I think we want to think long and hard about the degree to which we celebrate when home prices are rising. There are tensions in our housing system. Rising home prices aren't uniformly bad or uniformly good. It depends on your, uh, you know, who you're talking about, uh, when you are in your life, etc. And I think though, as a matter of public policy, We can't be aiming to grow ourselves out of this pandemic by further exacerbating the housing unaffordability because we really made hard work pay off less in British Columbia now, especially for younger people and newcomers to our province, uh, than anywhere else in the country. So I think this is a chance for us to do a gut check about when we see what's happening with housing prices, uh, housing sales and housing prices right now, do we really think that's a good thing? And uh, do we want to find perhaps a better balance between protecting people's equity, their security in their homes, but simultaneously wanting to leave opportunity for uh, earnings to reconnect to home prices over time? All right, Paul, thanks for talking to us about it today. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That's Paul Kershaw, founder of Generation Squeeze, UBC professor, talking about the housing market, which seems to be defying expectations right now. A lot of stuff is selling. Price is kind of inching back up as well. So there doesn't seem to be any kind of slowdown in that market, which really defies what's going on in other parts of the economy with people still unemployed. We saw those numbers come out today. You're still looking at a 10% unemployment rate across the country. Uh, so, you know, when it comes to the your housing price, if you have a house, if you're lucky enough to have one. I mean, are you happy to see housing prices go back up? Are you happy to see the market like this? Or do you think, you know what, we probably should have kept it a little bit lower. Uh, you know, this isn't like this makes it kind of more unequal with what's going on. You can weigh in with your thoughts to me at cknw.com. So our financial picture is one that has been changing for some and a lot of people worsening over the last six months or so. And there is concern that consumer debt is on the rise, even though interest rates, interest rates do remain pretty low. Are people using that money to get by on a you know weekly basis? Are they spending money on things? Like, where is it all going? Well, let's find out more about this. Rebecca Oakes joins us now. Rebecca works in advanced analytics at Equifax Canada, and we're going to talk about some of the disruptions that we're seeing out there. Rebecca, thank you for being here. Hi, good morning. So what is it that you've taken a look at and look at in terms of consumer spending? What are people using that money for? 
So it's really interesting since COVID started because what we've really seen is that consumers have actually pulled back their spending to a to a large degree, particularly on kind of high cost credits such as credit cards, which is a really positive thing in terms of going through a period such as this. But what we are seeing is that mortgages, uh, despite that kind of a slump in the housing market in April and May, that's actually really picked back up again, particularly in June and into July. So overall, household debt is on the up. So is it if so if mortgage balances helped push the average debt to you know a higher level, but non-mortgage debt was down, does that mean that people paying off their credit cards and perhaps would have deferred their mortgage payments for a few months? So in some cases, yes. So what we, what we have seen is that there's really some different things going on at the moment. So some consumers potentially may have already been in a bit of a challenging situation financially prior to COVID. And actually through this period, they're actually leveraging some of those support mechanisms to really help them out with other debts. So as you kind of mentioned there, potentially some consumers are deferring payments on things like mortgages to help them pay down some of those credit card balances elsewhere. At the same time, there are also pockets of consumers where actually this is a really difficult time for them still. Um, and they're still struggling a little bit in terms of how can they make those payments and their support mechanisms are really key to help them through this period. And how are delinquency rates? So delinquency rates are up very slightly this quarter. Year on year, they are up quite a lot. Um, But actually, a lot of that came from 2019. So in 2019, we were starting to see some consumers starting to miss some payments, um, kind of a bit of a fallout from some economical shifts like the oil prices, things like that, Mm -hmm. Uh, but also some of the earlier interest rates increases. So some consumers had extended things like HELOCs, you know, secured lines of credit, which have a variable rate. So as those interest rates started to increase, that put some stress on them. So some of those delinquency shifts we're seeing year on year actually happened prior to COVID. Um, So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens over the coming months as some of those support mechanisms start to reduce. Yeah, I guess that will be the key then. What about the housing market? It stayed remarkably resilient through all of this. Has that played a role at all? So... In April and May, it was really driven a lot by um, refinancing. So some consumers were kind of taking advantage of some of the low interest rates as as we kind of tried to stimulate the economy. Uh, So refinancing was kind of up more than actual house sales themselves. But I'm sure as you've seen the reports in July and coming into August, house sales have really bounced back, as have average house prices, which is kind of good and bad. It's great to see that, that initial recovery. But obviously for some consumers, you know, such as younger consumers, potentially first time home buyers, increasing house prices obviously is is additional stress for them. So what are you looking for for in the next couple of months then, Rebecca? So we've really got our eye on some of the industries that perhaps maybe may take slightly longer to recover. So there is some real positive signs in terms of what we've seen generally across Canada with employment rates and retail spending. But some industries still potentially are in a bit of precarious waters. So we mentioned a lot about the hospitality, the restaurant industries, where actually... There are quite a lot of consumers that are employed in those industries right. and it's still a little bit challenging for them through this period because obviously even with lockdown reducing, it's still quite hard for them to kind of keep their businesses at the same level that they had prior. We haven't really seen the full shake out yet, have we, of all the consequences of what's happened? No, I think I think the next couple of months in particular are going to be really interesting to watch and, and see and, and you know, fingers crossed it'll, it, it'll have a positive outcome, but Obviously, there are those risks that still still remain. Do you think that the measures that some of the banks took in terms of being more cooperative and helping people out and deferring some of those payments, did that help? Absolutely. I think that combined with the, the government programs, absolutely critical during this period in terms of helping people get through this. Um, but obviously, you know, at some point, those, those 
mechanisms are going to have to start to reduce. So it's really about balance. How do you balance reducing those that support with also the, the kind of increasing recovery? So right. if you get that balance right, that's fine. If you don't, then obviously that could create some additional challenges for consumers. It also sounds like, though, that the Canadians are pretty financially savvy, that, you know, taking advantage of the lower interest rates, refinancing things, paying off credit card debt, like they, they know what to do. Yeah, actually, we, we have been really quite uh, impressed in terms of how it has been handled. You know, definitely we are seeing consumers really kind of, you know, make those payments where they need to. They're making them on the, on, on the higher interest rate products, typically, try and get those balances down. So, yeah, we, we definitely think that consumers have been managing this in a really sensible way. All right. Well, Rebecca, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That is Rebecca Oakes. Uh, she's with Advanced Analytics at Equifax, and they are looking at essentially how Canadians are spending money. And they do have more debt in some areas, but like non-mortgage debt was down compared to 2019, even though mortgage balances were up a little bit. Might have to do with refinancing, might have to do with people kind of deferring payments. But overall, it sounds like Canadians were definitely kind of moving money around and trying to figure out what the best way is moving forward. But as Rebecca pointed out, and many others have too, the next couple of months are really going to be the time that tells us what kind of shape Canadians are in financially. This is Mornings with Simi. How does game seven sound tomorrow night here in Edmonton? Game seven sounds pretty darn good if you ask me and for a lot of Canucks fans of course that's what we are going to be watching this evening forcing a game seven last night they won game six of course quite definitively for nothing as a matter of fact thanks to Thatcher Jemko hey let's talk to Nikki Reitmeyer about this and more Nikki did you watch the game last night Yes, I did. It was uh, it was really, really satisfying to see. It really because there were so many doubters throughout this whole thing, right? Saying, oh, they're not going to make it to the next round. Or oh, they're certainly not going to beat the Las Vegas Golden Knights. Or, oh, you know, now that they're down in the series, they're not going to win. They're not going to come back. But that's just a coping mechanism, Nikki. Like, well, I, think, yeah. I know lots of Canucks <laughs> fans who have been doing that ever since I was like a little kid. Is that we do that because we want the opposite to be so true. But we're trying to tell ourselves that it's okay if it doesn't happen. Well, I think that's exactly it. Because if there's one thing I know about sports fans, it's that if you predict something such as failure and, and you're right, you feel so satisfied in your prediction, right? I told you they weren't going to make it. I think there's a lot of that going on. So, you know, even, well, look, who knows what's going to happen tonight? I'd love to see them go on to the next round. If they don't, you know, not the end of the world, but it would be really, I'd like to think positively about it. And if I'm wrong, that's okay. I don't mind being wrong, but I'd rather be thinking positively about them doing well tonight. I think what has amazed me about this particular team and the fans right now is that people seem so supportive regardless of the outcome. That is usually not the case with Canucks fans, <laughs> right? Usually it's one foot on the bandwagon, one foot kind of hanging off the bandwagon. And this time around, I feel like, and I say this from experience because this is what I've heard in my house, which was shocking to me, uh, which was, oh, you know what? Even if they don't win, we're just happy to be here. These guys are so great. They'll be back next year. And I looked at my husband and I said, who are you? What, if, yeah, what has happened to you? <laughs> this isn't a Canucks fan. Yeah, exactly. You should be screaming at your TV right now, yeah. swearing you'll never jump on the bandwagon again. So true. And isn't it funny too that, you know, typically if this was any other year, what conversation would we be having right now? We'd be talking about how expensive tickets are to go to the arena to watch the game, wouldn't we? Yes, 
How exciting yeah. would that be, though? And I think uh, Francesco yeah. Aquilini, one of the owners of the team, actually uh, tweeted that out last night about how great the atmosphere would be at Rogers Arena <laughs> if we were there. Uh, that is not, and I know it's hard for the team too. I know some of the players have referenced that that it's hard to keep up momentum and intensity and pressure when the crowd is not there. But they are certainly doing a great job. They certainly are, and it'll be really exciting to watch that game tonight. We're going out for dinner tonight because it is our producer Victor's birthday, which is very exciting. So just that little small crew of us uh, going to celebrate his birthday. So I really hope that they have the t- the TVs on in the restaurant and that the, the Canucks game will be on. I don't always wish for that, no. that TVs are on in a restaurant, but I, I, this would be great. I'd love to see TVs on in the restaurant tonight <laughs> so we can watch at least a few minutes of the game anyways in between bites. You just really gave me a flashback to my childhood there for a second. Can I tell a quick story? (laughs) Yeah, of course. This goes back to 1982. Okay. Canucks in the Stanley Cup final for the first time ever against the New York Islanders. And my whole family was out for dinner up at the top of Grouse Mountain. Uh, like, so it was like a really fancy dinner, yeah. right? We all got dressed up. I guess it had been, I don't know, I was only 10 years old or something like that, nine years old. And so um, it had been planned for a long time. We were all dressed up. But I do remember that sitting at the dinner table, it was only the women and children because all of the men were in the kitchen with the staff <laughs> watching the TV that they had on there because there was a hockey game. And I remember that the Canucks lost because I believe they went out in four straight. And I just remember this picture of these all these dejected men like my dad, my uncles, coming back into Stuck the dining the room because the Canucks had lost. And it was like, well, that was a quiet dinner after that. <laughs> that is hilarious. I can just picture that all these guys crowded around the oh, one yeah. chef who's, who's now burning the food because he's yeah. not watching the food at all. I didn't even remember what the food was like. I just remember that that was, everybody was crowded. They were all crowded around this little TV in the kitchen with the staff watching the watching the game. I think there'll be oh, some of that going on. So anywhere there's a TV tonight, I'm sure people will be watching. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's funny too, you know, back in the in the good old days, you used, used to listen to the Canucks on CKNW as well. I have so many memories of that from my childhood. So people will be watching, I'm sure, in different ways. I watched it on my laptop last night, which is, you know, new technology that we certainly didn't have back then. I'm, but as you said, <laughs> no. lots of people will be watching, will be watching tonight, which is really, really exciting. But okay, other than the Canucks game, do you have any plans for the long weekend? Um, no, I think I was going to bake some cakes this weekend. I have too much mayonnaise. So I was thinking maybe a couple chocolate cakes, but that's about it. Oh, too much mayonnaise. Why not feed it to other people? Right? Too, I don't know how I ended up with two giant Costco-sized jars of mayonnaise in my pantry, but something's got to be done. So, <laughs> Well, if you are hitting the road this long weekend, whether you're going to be traveling within the lower mainland or whether you're planning on, on going out of town, ICBC actually posted a really interesting warning that I thought was worth reiterating. They reminded everyone that there are 2,100 crashes that happen on average in British Columbia every Labor Day long weekend. I was really shocked to hear that 2,100 crashes that happen in BC. And they said on average, four people die as a result of those crashes Mm. and 600 are injured. So if you are going to be hitting the road this weekend, please be really careful. They sent out some reminders, the, the, the stuff that you'd expect, you know, don't use your cell phone while you're driving leave at least two seconds in following distance or three seconds. If you're on a high speed road, such as a highway, check road conditions before you travel and stay out of other people's blind spots, especially large trucks. I thought that one was interesting because yeah. I could just imagine, you know, truck drivers going, yes, please stay out of our blind spots. That would be so good. And I know it is going to be busy out there. The roads are certainly quiet commuting wise today, but lineups at the ferries tell us there's going to be a lot of traveling today. So Nikki, thank you.
Thanks, Simi. That is our Nikki Wright Meyer. Yes, keeping an eye on that uh, road safety out there, ICBC, with some good words of advice on that. Please don't be distracted driving. Don't using your cell phone. Don't do any of that kind of stuff. And yes, the ferries, you can check bcferries.com for more on that. But I tell you, if you're trying to go from the mainland over to one of the islands, Southern Gulf Islands, Vancouver Island, whatever the case may be, you're looking at not getting there until at least this afternoon because most of the ferries are full up at this point. So we'll keep you posted on how that goes. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there's an industry in BC that really needs your help right now. And by doing so, you can also help yourself by having some really good fruit because a lot of it is going to waste in the Okanagan or it's about to go to waste because farmers there can't pick the fruit fast enough and there's nobody to hire to help them do that. Joining us now is Pinder Dollywall, president of the BC Fruit Growers Association. Pinder, thank you for being here. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for having me on your uh, on the air today. Well, I saw this story and I thought well, we better talk about this because this is something that you know people love to buy local. They love to eat local. They love to buy their fruit from the Okanagan. But what's happening? Well, uh, as you know, it all started with uh, COVID nineteen in March. <clears throat> nobody knew that was going to come along and uh, things start shutting down and the airports were, were closing up and movement kind of came to a uh, standstill. And uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of preparation happened before the, the fruit uh, gets ready for harvest and uh, it's pruning, uh, thinning and, and uh, you know, getting the tree ready for, for the summer and to have a good, uh, good harvest, good fruit, good flavors. And uh, usually we get a lot of guest workers uh, coming in uh, from uh, the Caribbean, uh, mostly from Jamaica and Guatemala area and Mexico. And with the pandemic, the airport shut down and the uh, visa processing office shut down. So, so that created kind of a, well, it stopped all the labor coming from there. And so how have you managed, how have farms managed so far this year then? Well, um, it was tight once uh, people realized, you know, all, all the workers that do come in and help uh, get the uh, fruit and vegetables onto the kitchen tables for Canadians and, and for uh, export around the world, they realized that, uh, you know, they got to put in the extra hours and kind of uh, any help, uh, ask your neighbor if there's anybody having a day off or, or uh, you know, they finished uh, ahead of time to maybe send the, the help over so they could get uh, everything harvested in time. And it wasn't just the guest workers that come in from Mexico and and uh, the Caribbean. We have a lot of European and Asians that come in into uh, Canada on a tourist work visa. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it impacted them also. And uh, we have a lot of youth that come from Quebec and Ontario. And I would say about only half came uh, this year because uh, because of the uh, concerns uh, of the uh, COVID-19. So then I have farmers and the people who work there, you've just been working overtime constantly? Pretty much. It's overtime on top of overtime. <laughs> you know, it's all started with cherries, and uh, uh, pretty much uh, what happened with cherries is you started a block and, and you tried to keep up. If uh, Mother Nature doesn't stop, the the fruit keeps ripening. And uh, you just move on to the next variety if you didn't get off in time. And I know some growers, uh, my my friends here, um, when the next variety was kind of ripening uh, on stage to get it harvested, they left the block they were picking so they didn't uh, lose the next block just to kind of stay ahead of the game. Is there a lot uh, of wastage going on, do you think? Oh, yeah, yeah. If you came to my farm, uh, like right now, we're just finishing up with peaches and nectarines. 
And uh, I've got a sunrise apple. It's a summer apple. And they usually have about 10 pickers to pick that. Uh, we, we were working with four. And with four, I was working not only the uh, tractor, but I also, also was picking. So I was hopping back and forth quite a bit. So I couldn't get to my nectarines in time. And, of course, they over-ripened and, and they were falling. They'd kind of drop off the tree. And same thing happened with my pears. If you drive by, I'm on a, I'm on a busy road here. And uh, you'll see all these yellow, sparkling, nice-looking pears on the ground. And, and people kind of wonder. They stop by. And they'll say, hey, what happened to your pears? And so, well, we just couldn't get to them in time. And they and kind it- of... So, Pinder, what about you pick then? Can you get people to come and pick it for you? Just say, listen, ten, like, set a price for a box and tell people to come and get it. Yeah, it's, uh, you could have a you pick, but still you have to kind of monitor the picking of people that are walking through your farm. Um, you know, you want to give them some kind of training and say, hey, be careful of, uh, right. uh, you know, it's not level ground. It's, uh, there's grass here, there's mosquitoes. There might be that overripe uh, pear on the ground that they might step into, and and you know you still got to yeah. give them a heads up on, on what's expected in the uh, in the field. Um, but uh, you know we're trying to get all the locals out. I know uh, I had a few people come in from uh, Vancouver area, Lower Mainland, and basically he he came here for a week. He was like over sixty years old. I didn't realize that he was sixty years old, and he said, "Hey, I'll help you pick sunrise." He picked sunrise with me. And then he had a family matter. He had to go back, and he started talking to me the day he uh, got paid. He said, you know what? He was 66. I said, wow, you don't look 66. He <laughs> goes, I've been hardworking. And I thought, you know, I want to go out there and spend a week and see, you know, just help out. Okay. So he came out. So if and, we can send uh, more people yeah, your way out. then, if we can send more people your way to help out, what's, where can they reach you? Where can they get more information? You know, they can reach uh, our office, uh, BCFGA website. Uh, if they just okay. go to BCFGA, and uh, we'll have links up there, and uh, we'll try to coordinate with everybody. Okay. We also have uh, a labor uh, a program. Uh, he's tried matches uh, the workers with the farms. All right. Uh, his name is Ron Forrest. We have his number on the website. And uh, the apple, the winter apple is starting. We're just starting galas, so uh, we need all the help. If, if you got a week or, or maybe more than a week to come out, and experience we'll do the beautiful economy help us out. Well, to see what we can do. Pinder, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Simi. Have a good day. You too. So if you can help out BC fruit growers right now, spare a day, couple of days, go enjoy yourself and help them out and pick some fruit and earn some money, check them out at the BC Fruit Growers Association. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, there's so many things about this year that we find ourselves saying, geez, I I didn't expect to be here at this place. If you would ask Canucks fans, you know, at the early part of the year, would you expect to still be playing playoff hockey towards the end of the second round in the month of September? Yeah, that would have seemed pretty far-fetched. And yet here we are. Not only that, big game last night where they won, and now a game seven tonight. Let's talk about what's going on in the world of sports. Christian O'Mel joins us now, host of the sports show on 680 CJOB. Christian, thanks for being here. Good morning, Sammy. Christian, how about those Canucks? How about them? I mean, I I gave them very little chance of winning this series. And after game one and after game four, you're thinking, all right, well, they had a good run. It was nice, but <laughs> yes. it's, it's coming to an end here. And then Thatcher Demko comes in, and it's it's amazing what happens in the playoffs sometimes when just a goalie can make such a big difference. We've seen it so many times over the course of hockey history. A goalie can be the ultimate X factor. And here comes Thatcher Demko. He's 
been unbelievable, right? He makes 48 saves in a shutout last night. He wins his first career playoff start the, the game before. And I think part of it, too, is the shot total is high, but I'm not sure the chances are as dangerous as previous games. I think Vancouver's done a good job of keeping Vegas to the outside, and they seem to be panicking a little bit. It reminds me of 2010 when the Canadians upset the Capitals with Yaroslav Halak. They came back from 3-1 down, just like Vancouver's doing. They were allowing almost 50 shots a game, but a lot of them were long-range shots. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, Demko's been amazing. You've got opportunistic offense. You know, Jake Furtanen right off the bat last night. But the one thing I would be worried about if I'm a Vancouver fan is the fact that they're playing again tonight. And we've seen through the playoffs that back-to-backs, teams have been more successful when they have two goalies that can go. And here we have Vegas with Marc-Andre Fleury potentially being able to go tonight. And Jacob Markstrom is probably still hurt. So you're going to have to go with Demko again. He is red hot but he's going to be playing three games in four nights. And we'll see if that has a negative impact on him. But right now, Vancouver's got all the momentum. Christian, we're just happy to be here. That's the that's oh, what Canucks fans keep be. telling themselves. We are just happy to be here at this point. Oh, and you should be, right? No one expected you to get this far. And you have a, you're one win away from the Final Four. And you could be facing a Dallas team that just holds on or a Colorado team that's also on a third-string goalie. So... The playoffs in NHL are unpredictable in the best of times for the most part, but now you, you throw in the bubble aspect of it, you throw in no fans, no home ice, and it creates an environment where we might see some crazy momentum swings, and that's what we're seeing with three of the four series, having teams that have blown 3-1 leads and now going to Game 7. Hey, what do you think the, the ratings are like for the NHL playoffs? Because it's so weird, right? Actually watching playoff hockey in, here we are, September. Are a lot of people paying attention, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think that, I know for the, for a fact, south of the border, the NBA playoff ratings have been fantastic. Uh, north of the border, I know Sportsnet's numbers are up, for sure. They've got uh, a lot of live programming. And let's face it, in August, September, there aren't new shows on TV for the most part, right? That's yeah. when, you know, there's reruns, there's, you know, you're trying out these weird new series for this TV network. So in terms of competition, it's not what they're up against on TV. It's what they're up against in life, right? You got people leaving their house, they're going to the cottage, they're enjoying the weather. That's the competition of sports. But for those people who don't necessarily feel comfortable doing that with the current climate being what it is with COVID, it's a nice thing to, be distracted by and i i mean i'm a sports show host so i i have good reason to be watching every game every day yeah but for sure i think a lot of people are tuning in and the fact that there's a canadian team still in it has to make the rights holders in this country pretty happy uh do you want a prediction for tonight <laughs> not really you don't, you don't want to make I, a prediction really well last time i was on last time i was on the air i said it'd be vegas and boston in the Stanley Cup final yeah, and so far did. that's looking pretty rough so i don't, I don't think anyone has any belief in what I'm going to say. <laughs> that is true. Uh, that's tough, right? But that is the way of the playoffs, too. Uh, I think we're all pretty happy that you were wrong. One, Boston's out. That all, that always makes Vancouver oh, yeah, fans happy true. if Boston's That's true, out. eh? I guess, yeah, you've got some history with Boston back from 2011. Yeah, there's a lot that we could hang on to already. Uh, let's also talk about Raptors, because I was watching that game as well, uh, you mm-hmm. know, beginning of the Canucks game and watching the Raptors game. That was amazing. That finish, you just don't see anything like that very often. No, that was nuts. We've seen a bunch of crazy finishes in the bubble lately, and I think that uh, while I was on the air doing during my show, 
doing an interview last night while also keeping an eye on that game. I had I saw the buzzer beater happen, and and Boston wins the game. Like Boston won the game. 0.5 seconds left. This amazing play to get a wide open dunk, and you're thinking, oh, they're toast. They're yeah. gonna lose. They're gonna get swept. And then this incredible pass by Kyle Lowry over a guy with like a seven foot seven wingspan goes to the other side of the court, catch and shoot quickly. It goes in, and it's an incredible play. It's a buzzer beater. You know, if that was in, it would have been in Boston technically, I guess, if there were, you know, if this was the normal times. But let's remember that's an insane finish. They're still down in the series. They still barely won that game. Boston didn't play that well that game. So I'm still thinking the Raptors are in pretty big trouble to advance, but even if they don't advance, they still have this moment and they still have that title ring from last year. Oh, they certainly do. Do you think that's what we need right now are these kinds of storylines, this kind of drama, just something to keep people engaged and interested? Oh, well, that's what sports are all about, right? It's the ultimate reality television where you have, you know, a Michael Hutchinson for Colorado who is on a scrap heap. He's now got that team to game seven. You've got the Raptors you know, without Kawhi Leonard pulling these games out, still being a tough team to beat. And every night there seems to be something. We've got a great golf tournament this weekend, the U.S. Open. We've got three Canadians into the third round and the men's side for the first time ever of a Grand Slam. There's a lot happening in sports right now. And, you know, given that we're still not even close to out of the weeds with this pandemic and, you know, South of the border, things aren't all that great for a variety of reasons, and we obviously absorb some of that anxiety in this yeah. country. I'm totally okay with uh, spending a lot of time watching sports these days. I am totally okay with that, too. Uh, Christian, thank you. No problem. This is Mornings with Simi. Great song for a Friday morning, isn't it? And a great song to keep in mind because I think everybody has to stay positive over the next week or two as we shift our attention to getting back to school. It is a huge undertaking. Hey, September is a huge undertaking anyway, never mind the fact that there is a pandemic going on, right? And so we're juggling all of those concerns as we move forward. So that's our focus for the next week or two here on the show as well, talking about back to school. And towards that end, we have been discussing with different superintendents of different school districts what that school year is going to look like, at least at the beginning. And today it is Victoria's turn. We're going to find out how things are going in Victoria. So joining us now is Shelley Green, the Victoria School District Superintendent. Shelley, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. How big is the Victoria School District? We have 20,000 students and roughly 3,000 staff in Victoria, so um, medium size. Okay, medium size. How has the planning been going then? Are you comfortable with the plan? Yes, actually we are. We put out a survey to our families once we got our ministerial plan um, approved, and then we were hearing a lot about from our families that they had some concerns in some areas, and we created a survey for them to answer to let us know what they were looking at that would make them feel comfortable and confident about returning this school year. We had uh, a huge uptake in our survey, and it came back 80% that wanted fully back in and were anxious to get back to school. Uh, 14 were looking at a hybrid, which was uh, some face-to-face with our staff, some um, remote learning, and some at-home school-style learning. Mm-hmm. And, of course, with our immunocompromised uh, families, identifying who is in that space and being able to provide learning for that. So we've been working with those numbers all week, 
And we are comfortable and confident about going back to school next week. So a lot of parents that I've heard from are hoping that their school district, wherever it is, provides them some kind of option for like transitional learning or some learning at home. Has Victoria been able to do that? Yes. That was uh, what we were hearing as well. And so that's what we came up with with the hybrid model for those families that aren't quite comfortable transitioning back in. And, and it provides an opportunity as well for them to be able to learn from those areas that you've just described, but also when they become confident about their students returning with the um, plan that we've got, there is an entry space. So natural turnaround times in our school district and being able to have space in their schools and keeping their space as this moves forward. So what about the size of the cohorts then, the learning groups for the students? Uh, it's, it seems to vary with every district. It does indeed. And, and as we've gone through the initial ideas about those cohorts, I think were scary for people. But what they've realized as we've gone along is that we've designed our, our school day um, around these models to begin with to set the space. Most of our classes will return inside their normal division and, and learn within those. So that could be a division in an elementary school of 24 students um, or in a high school of 28. And some of those divisions will cross over um, into each other and we will provide the safety measures when they do. Some won't, and they will stay um, in their own cohort uh, the entire time, depending on. And then when people come into their classroom, say a prep teacher who's going to do music, they will wear the masks and do the social distancing. So those um, guidelines that we've received around safety protocols has really helped, and I think that's lowered the anxiety for many of our parents. And what about the sanitization in the schools? Has that been increased as well? Absolutely. We've hired more custodians in our school district and paid attention to um, the design of, of not only the cohorts, but the classes and where they go and touch spaces. So if uh, two classes are entering into a classroom, um, the first half of the day in high school and a different class in the afternoon will be doing the cleaning in between. Um, we've set up the touch spaces and common spaces in between. We've got cleaning products in every single classroom or meeting room. So if I'm sitting in a meeting and the meeting is over, I can use those cleaning products, clean where I was. So each one of those things has been carefully designed about the guidelines for cleanliness, custodial Mm -hmm. time, and making sure we have the turnaround. And what about uh, the actual social distancing and physical distancing in the classrooms? This has been a big one for so many people. It certainly has. And I mean, we've listened to Bonnie Henry. She's been amazing as we've gone through. Um, BC has done very well in our statistics on how we are doing. And so bringing in kind of like that family bubble um, into your cohort, knowing that those 24 students and four teachers will be in that space, um, the cleanliness and, and protocols around them and being comfortable in there. And then when other folks um, enter into that space, that's with the social distancing. But ultimately, when you're in a hallway or an uncontrolled space, to keep um, the masks and, and those protocols in place. Um, we were talking about fire drills, actually, the other day and how we navigate around a fire drill and spacing people out when yeah. it's two cohorts that haven't been around each other. So the planning with each one of those directions has been um, very succinct. And even though people, as you said, are a little bit nervous, I feel totally confident about the, uh, the guidelines that we've followed for health as we've moved forward for this restart in September. And how important, I know, and I know this too, how important this is, uh, in keeping that attitude because we're dealing with kids here, right? And oh, a- adults yeah. have to kind of lead the way on this. 
Absolutely. And you're right. We are talking about children. Uh, they will go outside on the playground and they will play and, um, and go into each other's bubbles. And it's just reminding them, as we always do, when we come back in with our little ones, you're going to wash your hands. Remember not to touch your face and getting into those routines. And once children are in those routines, they do very well with them. It's just that reminder in the training piece when you're walking down the hall or social distancing. One thing I have noticed this summer being out and about and seeing a lot of our students around is that uh, when you go to the grocery store, they actually remind their parents of what to be doing. So oh, they do. They attach to it very well, very quickly. Oh, they certainly do. All right, listen, best of luck, Shelley. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for having me. Have a great day. You too. That is Shelley Green, the superintendent of the Victoria School District. We've been checking in with as many school districts from around the province as we possibly can. And as you, if you've been listening, then you know that every plan is slightly different. But of course, it will depend on the school size, the district size, how many students, what they are able to do. But there is some uniformity there. And I think the big challenge here is you know, making sure everybody's on board, but also adults have to do a lot of work here and reassuring kids, taking charge, making sure that we remind the kids that this is what we're doing and reassuring them because kids will get anxious about this if they sense, you know, all the anxiety coming from the adults here too. So next week, yeah, will be that challenge. We're going to continue to talk about this and, and tell me how you're feeling at this point. Like hopefully as a parent, you have more information than you did a couple of weeks ago. Hopefully, fingers crossed, you're feeling a bit better about the process or you might have some more concerns and questions. Let me know what those are so that we can continue to have that conversation. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. As we get further from April, the amount of juice left in the labor market from reopening of businesses that were shut down earlier is gradually fading. Right. That's Brendan Bernard. He's an economist at the Indeed Hiring Lab. That was his prediction yesterday on what we were going to hear in today's labor force survey. So the employment numbers that are out today, though, don't kind of tell the full story of where we are at with getting things, at least trying to get things back to normal. So let's talk about that now with our next guest. It is Ken Peacock, Chief Economist and Vice President at the Business Council of BC. Ken, thanks for being back with us. You're very welcome. Good to be here. Oh, let's start with what you like about the numbers. Well, it's in positive territory, uh, so we saw jobs added, so that that's good news. But we're heading in the right direction. Um, after that, the, the positive details start start to diminish, and, and the the biggest thing is just the slowdown in the pace of job creation. I I would characterize this as, you know, if we were in normal times, uh, a fifteen thousand gain for a single month would be quite strong and something to, to actually celebrate. But in the current context, when we've lost so many jobs, this 15,000 uh, gain re- really is a slowdown. When you consider the previous month, we had 70,000 and the previous month, uh, twice that. So exactly as your little opening segment, as, as your short op- opening segment says, suggested today, we are seeing the wind and the, and the juice come out of the labor market in terms of the rehiring process. Right. And I guess that's also because I guess we were hoping that we could make up a lot of jobs in the summer because as we go into the fall now, circumstances change in terms of the rules that governments had put into place. Sure, yeah, we, exactly. And we were hoping the reopening would lead to a, a big rebound, and, it, and, and indeed it did. I think we are now into the phase where you, where you saw that big juice with the, in, in employment with the reopening, and now we're into a world where... Business is uncertain still. 
the, the rehiring activity that was going to occur has taken place, and now it's, it's mixed across industries. And this is exactly what we see. Somewhat surprisingly, we didn't actually see job growth in the services sector. And, and I say surprisingly because that's really where the consumer close, closures uh, facing businesses were closed and the, the pain was most acute. All of the jobs this month were in the manufacturing sector and the components in manufacturing. Sorry, all the jobs this month were in the goods producing sector. And it was manufacturing, agriculture, and construction that were the main drivers. So we really didn't see much much lift on the uh, services side of the economy. And as I said, that's that is a bit surprising. Right. Are you concerned as well that those provincial layoff provisions are ending? They're done now. I mean, that was at the end of August. So things, yep. the September numbers are, I feel like, are going to be quite consequential. They they are. You you the the layoffs uh, ha- having to just. Dis- Make the decision whether you're going to bring somebody back or lay them off permanently. Not uh, not being able to extend this is going to cause uh, and prompt a lot of layoffs. Uh, we do suspect. And then the other thing, of course, is the wrapping up of the CERB. Uh, so you've got a couple dynamics there. You've got some some situations where layoffs may be forced, and then you also have situations where is going to run out for, for a lot of people and those people will be looking for work. So the key, the key question is when those people are flowing back into the labor force and labor market looking for work, are there, are there going to be jobs available for them? Right. So that's what we're going to be watching. So uh, th- does this look like a, a change that is happening, Ken? Like is the economy overall having to, is it adapting or are we still in a bit of a waiting period, do you think? Uh, it, it, the adaption process is constant, so the churn and, and the adaption is ongoing. It's just it's just a question of, of how quickly, and it takes time. The economy is so big; there's so many people employed, and I mean, just just to give your listeners a sense, there were one. 0.1 million British Columbians who collected the CERB or have collected the CERB so far. The overall job market prior to the pandemic uh, hitting us was, you know, employment was 2.3 million. So upwards of a half of everybody in the labor market has collected the CERB at some point over the past six months. So the transition away is worrisome. uh, The slowdown in job growth is worrisome. So I do think we're going to face some challenges in September. And now leading, you know, into the fall, this is usually kind of a buying season, right? You've got Halloween coming, Thanksgiving, you've got Christmas. What do we think about those kind of retail holidays at this point? I I think they should be good. I, I mean, the retail... Spending has been surprisingly strong, but but to, but to my mind, some of that reflects the fact that I mean, people didn't have access to stores for a couple months, so there was some pent up demand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as long as the CERB is flowing, there's a fair bit of income. I mean, uh, so, so that probably helps boost retail. I, I think you're going to see again a, a bit similar pattern to the job market story, where that rebound in retail spending is is going to moderate a little bit so yeah a little bit of a question mark about the, the holiday spending season it will it will be diminished and dampened if there is this challenge if if that uh, removal of the serve actually hits household finances uh, hard and harder than i, I guess uh, government officials and some other people are expecting yeah i guess we will see ken thank you for your time you're very welcome
Ken Peacock, Chief Economist and Vice President at the Business Council of BC. Yeah, the August numbers are out, but really, I think most economists and everybody, they're looking ahead now to September, October, where temporary layoff provisions are gone, meaning companies can now permanently lay off workers, and that big change starts to happen. If you want to tell me your story about what's happened to you in the workplace, by all means, email me, simi at cknw.com. We are going to talk about what's going on in the housing industry and what that means for house prices coming up. This is Mornings with Simi. In Vancouver, uh, home sales uh, up significantly across all product types. Home prices up as well. Uh, And again, we always have to remind ourselves that we are in a global pandemic with uh, double-digit unemployment. Uh, So this is not the usual thing that we see in a recession. No, it is not. That is BC Real Estate Association Chief Economist Brendan Ogmanson talking about the state of the housing market right now, which does seem contradictory, does seem to be kind of defying expectations. Uh, There are people jumping into the housing market right now. Things are selling really quickly. So we wanted to break down further the impact this could potentially have out there. So joining us now is UBC professor and founder of Generation Squeeze, Paul Kershaw. Hi, Paul. Hi, thanks for having me. What do you make of what's going on? Well, I think we actually see a continuation of the trend in Canada where housing is providing two important things for people. On one hand, it's the place we call home that's become so increasingly important to us as a place of refuge amongst uh, amid the pandemic. But it's uh, simultaneously in our culture also a good investment opportunity. And we're seeing right now people with means supported to some degree by record low interest rates, finding new opportunities to search for that good investment, while also potentially adjusting you know, some of the home circumstances that they're looking for. So it's these two competing trends, right. is it a place to call home or an investment. It, that's interesting because you would, most times you think that in an economic downturn, prices will go down, things will level out, and maybe that would provide a way for some people to get into the market. Well, if we have a goal of affordability, then absolutely, like, you know, one might have thought a silver lining from the pandemic would have been continuation of the slowdown in home prices in British Columbia and Metro Vancouver. Um, A few years ago, you know, our research would have shown it would have taken a young person getting into the housing market 29 years of full-time work to save a 20% down payment on an average-priced home. By last year, it had crept down to 26 years. That's, you know, clearly a huge problem still, but it's a bit of progress. And it's discouraging to see that, the uh, we've reversing that trend uh, amid the pandemic, but I think it's partly how we talk about it. I mean, if we t- if we think about how housing prices right now are often characterized by commentators, we'll say, oh, the housing market is recovering, uh, and the, that means we're thinking the housing prices are healthier when they start to rise again. And you know, for people like me who are homeowner, and my home, full disclosure, went up three hundred thousand dollars last year according to BC assessment. Personally, I gain a great deal of wealth when home prices rise. But by the same measure, someone who works just as hard as me and is just as clever as me coming into my neighborhood now is going to find it much more challenging to get right. into the housing market. And so I think we have to have a much more nuanced conversation. What do we mean when home prices are healthy and amid a pandemic more so than ever? So do we say that, do you think, because prices are going up or do we say that because everything is selling? You know, things are going on for the market. They're not sitting on the market. Things are selling really quickly. I think we typically think that housing prices are, or the housing market is healthy when home prices are going up. I think that's the most common way to describe it. I also think that amid a pandemic, you know, as our governments are looking to reignite our economies, you know, BC is particularly at risk 
of falling back on trends that had, you know, driven up our gross domestic product in past years, but actually exacerbated unaffordability. So in British Columbia, uh, pre-pandemic, about 18% of our economy was represented by real estate rental and leasing. But amazingly, just 2% of British Columbia residents actually find employment in that sector. And so our economy had been growing faster than other provinces because our economy was the place where more and more of our economy is represented by real estate. And had we had employment in that sector growing at the same pace, that wouldn't be so bad because then you'd be growing employment in numbers that would keep earnings in relationship to the rising cost of housing. But our strategy has been different. We've been growing our economy by growing the major cost of living without ensuring that that industry is also generating jobs at levels that keep earnings in pace. So, Paul, what should we be doing then? I think we need to have a new conversation amid the pandemic about what would it be to build a better economy coming out of the, the pandemic. And I think we want to think long and hard about the degree to which we celebrate when home prices are rising. There are tensions in our housing system. Rising home prices aren't uniformly bad or uniformly good. It depends on your, uh, you know, who you're talking about, uh, when you are in your life, etc. And I think though, as a matter of public policy, We can't be aiming to grow ourselves out of this pandemic by further exacerbating the housing unaffordability because we really made hard work pay off less in British Columbia now, especially for younger people and newcomers to our province uh, than anywhere else in the country. So I think this is a chance for us to do a gut check about when we see what's happening with housing prices, uh, housing sales and housing prices right now. Do we really think that's a good thing? And uh, do we want to find perhaps a better balance between protecting people's equity, their security in their homes, but simultaneously wanting to leave opportunity for uh, earnings to reconnect to home prices over time? All right, Paul, thanks for talking to us about it today. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That's Paul Kershaw, founder of Generation Squeeze, UBC professor, talking about the housing market, which seems to be defying expectations right now. A lot of stuff is selling. Price is kind of inching back up as well. So there doesn't seem to be any kind of slowdown in that market, which really defies what's going on in other parts of the economy with people still unemployed. We saw those numbers come out today. You're still looking at a 10% unemployment rate across the country. Uh, so, you know, when it comes to the your housing price, if you have a house, if you're lucky enough to have one. I mean, are you happy to see housing prices go back up? Are you happy to see the market like this? Or do you think, you know what, we probably should have kept it a little bit lower. Uh, you know, this isn't like this makes it kind of more unequal with what's going on. You can weigh in with your thoughts to me at cknw.com.